Welcome back to Peaks on Radio's Island Update for the week of August 8th. On Monday, August 9th, and Tuesday, August 10th, the Lions Club invites you to the 72nd Annual Variety Show here on Peaks Island. Come and enjoy the latest crop of Peaks Island talent. You can cheer on your neighbors. That's August 9th and 10th, right at Greenwood Gardens at the Lions Club. Also on August 10th, the TEIA invites you to their lecture series. It was a popular Tuesday evening lecture series. This week's lecture will be delivered by artist Joe Cardiello. Joe was born and raised on Staten Island, New York. He attended the High School of Art and Design, and he also earned a BFA degree from Parsons College. Joe has illustrated Elmore Leonard's 10 Rules of Writing. He also did a 2011 limited edition release of his blues musician portraits called Black, White, and Blues. And his latest book is a graphic journal titled A Fistful of Drawings. So come check out Joe's presentation about drawing and art at the TEIA August 10th at 7 p.m. On August 11th, the 5th Maine invites you to a front porch meetup at 4 p.m. It's entitled Friends Who Like Peaks Island History. You can gather with those who know Peaks on the 5th Maine porch and informally learn about some of our history. And on Friday, August 13th, the Peaks Island Radio Summer Concert Series continues at Jones Landing. The Hedgehogs will be performing with special guest Jack Barrett. You may know him from Why Whisper, performed out here a couple times as well. They'll be performing British Invasion-era tunes with acoustic instruments and, of course, rich vocal harmonies. There's live music, 6.30 to 8.30. Dinner's available at local food trucks. And you can also purchase drinks for on-the-deck dining. On Saturday, August 14th, the TEIA invites you at 6.30 p.m. to a lamb roast put on by Chef Peter Rose. Side dishes include rye panzanella, sauerkraut salad, sweet corn, chard and Swiss cheese gratin, mustard and dill potato salad. It's BYOB for cocktails on the porch. That starts at 6. Seating and dinner begins at 6.45. You do need advanced reservations. Tickets are $30, limited to 100 guests. To reserve a seat, please contact Stephanie Castle at sealights99 at aol.com. And that's it for this week's Peaks Island Island Update. We'll be back next week with more island information and events. It's summertime on Peaks Island, and that means a couple of things. Ticks and mosquitoes, sure. But also trips to the beach, lots of tourists, and plenty of people looking for good summer reads. If you like crime dramas and you like stories set in Maine, Our guest today has written the perfect book for you. It's called The Damage, and it's written by Caitlin Ware. Caitlin lives in southern Maine. She's a former lawyer, an author, and also a friend. The Damage is her debut novel. It's published by Penguin Random House, and it's available at all major booksellers, as well as our local bookshops, including print, which is where I ordered my copy. In this conversation, Caitlin and I talk about the novel itself, stepping away from law practice, and what she had to learn and go through to land a book deal. We start with a good laugh. Have you ever seen the Zach Galifianakis between two ferns thing that he does? This? Yes, I love those so much. <laughs> so that that's what came to mind when I was thinking about asking this question. So okay. <laughs> as somebody who likes to do some creative stuff, in addition to being yeah. a lawyer, I know how like crazy hard it can be. And I hope you remember from law school when people were like, we're here to train you to think like a lawyer and we're going to totally change how you think. And then of course you had all the like really cynical lawyers say, Oh, it's just going to cut off the creative part of your brain. You know, you're never gonna be able to, you know, do anything other than law ever again. And I want to know, given all of that, that you were told in law school, are you prepared to ask for your money back? (laughs) (laughs) That is such a between two ferns question. You would have like, read the amount of money I paid for my law degree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
<laughs> so yeah, I totally see why you thought of that. Um, okay. Here's the truth. No, I honestly have no regrets about going to law school. And I know that's like a very like me answer because you know me, <laughs> but like to other people, they're probably like, seriously, but really I genuinely have no regrets about having gone to law school, even though I'm not practicing anymore. Um, I do think it made it harder to write creatively at first, but I think that it also made me like a really careful writer. And I think that um, my drafts are really clean, which sounds like how important could that be? But it's actually amazing. It like does a lot for you when you're sending stuff out. Like I think for my agent and the editor, they were both like, wow, like she's going to do a really good job. Like she clearly really cares about it. I think it sends that message. So like no regrets there. Then obviously like I met my husband in law school. I met some of my best friends in law school. I have like amazing experiences. I totally don't regret it, even though it was a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) So of of course the topic of your book has you know legal ramifications too, and I I I think for people who read it they might be like oh you know crime drama thriller, but did did you feel that you you poured um, any of your legal experience either from your job or from school into the the substance of the book? Totally. Um, so I was still working while I wrote it, um, at least the first two years that I was writing it. Um, And one of those years I was doing the court appointed work. So I was doing cases that kind of sometimes touched on this kind of law. So the book is about um, the aftermath of a sexual assault allegation and the, the criminal process following that. And it's from the perspective of the so-called victim. So like the survivor and his family versus from the defense perspective, which is what I used to do. So for sure, some of it, I was stretching or I was like researching, um, like I have a friend who's a prosecutor and I used him, um, for like checking me on stuff where I was like, I've actually never been in this kind of meeting. Like I've never gone to a, um, grand jury, that kind of thing. Um, but I definitely had my own parts of the experience in there just from even reviewing you remember from like clinic work when you like just review the documents that you get you learn so much about what has happened already in a case so even if you weren't there you're kind of still figuring it out and so um I definitely poured a lot of my experience in there and then the main character is also um a former lawyer she's like she works in policy now because she's at home with her kids and that kind of thing. But um, actually, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I was I wrote her as a burned out lawyer, which I had already figured out I was. <laughs> 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 and so um, but she definitely through her character brings the defense perspective in by explaining to the family what's happening, and what's going to happen next and what they should expect and what they shouldn't expect. So, yeah. I want to do a couple of things. I want to step back and, and let people know who were not lawyers that um, court-appointed work is, you know, working with people who are in, in the criminal um, justice system. And you, and you had done that and you'd done some challenging work with uh, juveniles as well. And I, I wonder, did you get this germ of an idea for your book while you were doing that? Or did you have to sort of step back from that a little bit? Because I know that you had gone to another firm too. Did you have to sort of step away before you could sort of wrap your head around doing this in a, at a 
fiction. Uh, yeah. Context. So um, I had the idea while I was working at the court appointed firm. Um, and I would say that the idea actually might've been, yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, um, the idea is older than that firm. So like it's, it was partly this, I, I call it a thought experiment. I don't know what else you would call it, but like how you distract yourself and entertain yourself when you're driving in the car or just doing something else, like washing the dishes and you're not listening to something. Um, and it was like this kind of what if scenario between a husband and wife, which is kind of the main, main thrust of the book. And then the idea for the crime came from actually a coworker when I was clerking before I started. Um, but then I started writing it and it, it came as like a full, oh, put all these pieces together. And this is like the idea for a novel that all happened while I was working court appointed. And I didn't really step back too much. Um, I worked on it every morning before I went in and it was like very therapeutic actually to write about it and to work through it. But I definitely each draft got a little more stepped back, I would say from my job. So like my first, (laughs) my first draft of the book, like I think literally had a quitting scene in it. Like the scene where the woman stops doing the work that's crushing her and that is not in the book anymore because it didn't have anything to do with the book. And it was like, I didn't even notice I had written it and like thought that it was like important to the story until I was reading it. And I was like, yeah, I just don't want to do this work anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, it was totally the kid nature of the work that was crushing me. Like there were just too many endangered or at-risk kids in every single one of my cases. Um, And so that part I kind of did have to step back on. Um, But now that you mentioned the juvenile work, I do think that also really came into play with the character of Nick, who is the younger brother who is sexually assaulted in the book, because although he's 20, just when you think about like brain development and that kind of thing, I do think that a lot of his experience was kind of similar in broad strokes ways to stuff that I saw my own clients go through when they were like dealing with either the trauma of being arrested and put in Long Creek or just the trauma that they had already experienced in their life. And they were now kind of interacting with me because of some conduct that they may or may not have participated in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, So I think that definitely came into the character work Mm -hmm. as well. Now that I'm thinking about it and as you were as you were going along and writing so i i want to step back and talk about um you writing in the mornings and if if that was a a strategy and then also i want to talk a little bit about maybe the way that you processed because of of what you said about the burnout scene but let's start with with the (laughs) with the time of day that you were writing was it did you were you experimenting and thinking like well maybe the morning maybe after work at night like how did you come to the routine that you did um I think if I remember I I just had um a a thought really early on that I doubt I can do this after work. I think I'm too tired. And I'm like, all I want to do at that point in the day is sit on the couch with Ben and the dog and watch TV and just like decompress. And so I was like, well, the only option then is to get up really early in the morning. And, um, 
as many do, I started reading Stephen King and getting myself pumped up about, okay, like act like a writer, like you can do this. We went on vacation. And then I came back and was like, I'm doing this. Like I'm really doing this. And I just started getting up at five and it, I just kind of didn't stop until, um, until I guess the pandemic is when my routine kind of went off the rails. And then I got pregnant and I was like, nope, now I'm really sleeping in. And so, but up until that moment, I really did keep getting up at five every morning to write. Um, and then you had a second question. But as I mentioned, the pregnancy, now I have a newborn. I don't remember the second question. <laughs> Yeah, and I should I should really break it up anyway. So, <laughs> um, like uh, two lawyers talking on a <laughs> interview. Compound question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so as far as your your um, writing time, you had said that you had written this scene where you were writing about a a burnt out lawyer and like the the scene where she quit. And I'm I'm wondering, did you use your your writing as any form of like? therapeutic processing for yourself to about the, either the cases or the stress that you were under? Totally all of that. Um, and I think that also it kind of, it was also something that helped me get through the last, I, I stayed for a year after I had a feeling it wasn't going to work out, but I was, I did go to therapy. I was trying all different things to see if I could kind of remedy the situation. But I think that it was really just like a personality mismatch. Like I was never quite going to be able to fix it to the extent that I needed to. Um, but it really kind of helped me get through going to work every day and um, not completely just abandoning the job without trying, you know, like really, really trying. And, um, and so it definitely helped with that. And then it also was just kind of therapeutic to like process, maybe even to think about. So I, I was really passionate about defense work and I still think that defense lawyers serve like such an important role in all types of law, but especially the types I was doing, I, I very much felt that, but I still think it was kind of therapeutic for me to think about um, what a survivor's family goes through and write about that and talk to um, lawyers who work with survivors in different contexts. And um, like I talked to your coworker slash our friend, Melissa, um, and I gave her a really early version of the book and had her read it and talk to her about it and that kind of thing. And um, so I do think personally, it was doing a lot of different work for me <laughs> as well. So actually, it's funny that you bring up Melissa because um, I remember talking to her while you were in the early stages of writing, and she had said that she had read it, and she said, I just couldn't believe how gruesome it was. I never would have thought of that coming from Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> so like without giving everything away, I will say like people have kind of like covertly asked me like, well, is this do you think this is the right result? And I'm like, no, no, like for me, the point was also to write a great drama. I promise the point was also like, this is not me advocating how I think the system should work or anything like that. This was also me trying to like write a dramatic story <laughs> like for sure. But I know some of my people who know me are like, oh, really? like I'm surprised by this book coming from you, but it's also 
that's part of the fun is I'm trying to surprise you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that, that obviously is the mark of a, of a great story. I think one of the things that I, I, I was really thinking about when I read the excerpt and, and when I was thinking about talking to you about this is, sure, there's probably that lawyer part that we've talked about that comes into play and wanting to talk to as many par- people, as many players in the process as possible. But then there's also the other side of your life too, right? That that maybe took Melissa by surprise and then you know made her and I laugh when we thought about it, right? The fact that, as you state in your website, you're you're raised by hippies, you do yoga, <laughs> right? You, you do the whole <laughs> vegan thing. So, how how did you bring those parts of you to bear on the story? Like, was it just um, w- w- did you determine that this isn't going to just be this like gruesome thrash, or this is going to be you know some other? There's going to be some other element to be to this because of who you are. Um, okay, so that's a great question because I do think something that the book is totally missing is my goofy, more lighthearted side. And so I do think sometimes matching me up with the book is a little bit weird for people, especially if you just know me well and know what my like baseline day to day personality is like. It doesn't really match this book. Um, and so I know for sure that has been something. And because of the subject matter I chose to write about, it it was the kind of book where it, it wasn't really right to put goofy, funny stuff in it. Um, because I think that ultimately, because of what I'm writing about, I need to make sure that readers don't feel kind of this weird whiplash of like, not taking it seriously, because it is really serious, even though I'm also trying to write an entertaining drama. And so I think that ultimately, like it is just one slice of me that is not like my overall normal personality. If you like went out and had coffee with me. Um, But I do think that my personality is in there in a few ways, especially including just how, I guess you wouldn't necessarily know it. And I know not every reader is going to have this reaction and that's fine, but I have had some really kind readers reach out to me about how thoughtful they felt like the book was and how like compassionate it was. And I do think that is what I'm like when it comes to um, people who've had something really awful happen to them um, and people who are going through something. And I think when you read the book, like there are some characters that are probably going to really annoy you because they're just doing stuff that you're like, why are you handling it like this? This isn't like grow up kind of. (laughs) Like, this isn't what you should be doing. You're doing this wrong. You're messing it all up. But I think even that kind of person, I have so much empathy for them that I like did a lot of work to try to write the characters so that at the end of the day, you weren't like, I just straight up hated that guy, (laughs) but you might anyway, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I do think that that is in there, but, but other parts (laughs) of me are not. And I don't know about my parents. I don't know if they're in there at all, really. <laughs> Most of my, my my older parent figures in the book are kind of lackluster or they're not very big characters. And that doesn't really fit my parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the things I, I noticed, and it's interesting to hear you describe it as um, taking a thoughtful approach, is how much more human, even in the the excerpt, which obviously is not the bulk of the book, uh, the characters were than in a lot of other books in the same genre, right? So it almost seems like in some ways you're weaving a couple of different genres. It has sort of like a, uh, 
I guess I'd describe it just because of some of the writers that I like, like Flannery O'Connor, for example, of having like this sort of like Southern sensibility about treating uh, human beings, right? So you get yeah. deep into the head of of um, Julia when she's like waiting to go in and talk to the detective in the excerpt. And right. she's like <laughs> worried about going in to talk to him. And you can really, you can feel her inner turmoil and her inner stress in a way that I think makes her more vivid than a lot of other crime drama. So I, I think it's interesting to say that you were being thoughtful about it. And I'm wondering if um, if that was something intentional that you had said, I'm going to make these all of these people real human beings. Um, I guess maybe not in the sense, like when I started writing, I, I actually, so I actually had a fifth point of view character who got dropped from the book. So I had the, the quote, bad guy, the, the, um, accused rapist. He had a point of view and he got dropped from the book because it's so much better without him having a point of view. <laughs> it's a short answer. So much better without him. Um, and someone pointed that out to me. And as soon as they said it, I was like, oh, I'm going to try that. Yeah. And it was better. Um, but the, the characters who are all there now, the Julia, her husband, Tony, the um, brother, Nick, and the detective, I definitely wrote them all just very like wanting it to feel like you were really in their head. And I think it's called close third person, where even though you're reading it as he picked the book up, you're giving a lot of clues about what's going on and how they're perceiving what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. And I just really like reading books like that, but it wasn't super calculated at first that I was like trying to give each of them a character arc or anything like that. But I, I do think that as I started to edit the book, I went a lot deeper, especially on Nick's character, but also on um, Tony and really everyone, but the two of them in particular, I would say, um, and realizing that I needed to kind of, it would be more satisfying if everyone kind of had not necessarily exactly an arc, but just like some real marked change that you could experience through the book and have like some kind of resolution for each character at the end, even if it's not perfect, because when you're writing like a suspense story, you also really like the idea of having a really punchy ending. And sometimes having that makes it hard to then do, um, a super long denouement after that because <laughs> you're trying to end on like a gut punch. And so it's like, you kind of have to almost put the denouement fr first and then end with something surprising. <laughs> and then you have to rethink, Oh, so if that's what happened, how does it recast what I just read <laughs> about each of these characters? But I did still really try to do that. And so it, it ultimately was conscious, but I didn't set out that way. You're talking a lot about, the thought that you put into the process and then sort of going back and, and doing a rethink and all of that. Did you um, do any sort of like deep dives into the novel writing process? Did this process sort of just better fit your personality or, or was it somewhere in between? I definitely read a lot about how to write a novel. Um, I think maybe some people are born with like an innate <laughs> storytelling ability that is just gorgeous, or maybe they're like, English majors. So even though they didn't exactly study this, they just have this great sense of story structure and that kind of thing. But like, I don't think there's any shame in literally Googling, how do I write a novel? Like how, like just like starting really basic and figuring out like different um, story structures, like 
there there's something called a three act structure or a four act structure or you know there i mean i could go on but it just doesn't really matter like the point is just that i did do all of that stuff and it really helped a lot and even from writing the very first draft i think i was working with an understanding that it i wanted to have three different acts of the book and then eventually that became you know that middle act is so long <laughs> that's like the hardest part of writing a book most people will tell you it's like the middle of the book it just gets long and floppy and saggy and it's too big and nothing's happening and so for me splitting that in half and seeing the book as four acts was really helpful um and i think it i think the book even is in four acts like i think i've separated it with four of them now um I'm pretty sure. And so I I did a lot of that. And some of it was reading books and some of it was truly just looking at like blog articles and um, even some like YouTube videos every now and then and just getting the information in different ways so that you didn't get bored with how much <laughs> studying you were having to do. But um, it definitely... Because a huge part of it, I mean, it was definitely therapeutic, but I also really did want to write a good story and that having that structure can really help you do that in a way that's satisfying to a reader. So I, I think that that's one of the great parts about the internet now, right? That you can sort of, like you said, find many different ways to to learn information about something that you want to tackle. And I'm wondering if at any point, you know, you you, you did that, you did some drafting. Did you say to yourself, this internet research has been great, but now I need to talk to a real person. And did you reach out to anybody as like a mentor to help? Yeah. So I did actually meet authors different ways. And um, we love, like, I think anyone who loves to write about story also loves to like talk about it, which it makes a lot of sense. And so I think that um, it's not too too hard to find writing mentors if you're actually like really interested in that. Like one thing I did was um, Main Writers and Publishers Alliance has um, an event called Gather, which they were even doing during the pandemic. I'll be honest, I didn't participate, um, but I went to it before the pandemic and um, you would just, well, gather in a <laughs> restaurant and have, um, you would have dinner together and it would be like, here's the South Portland group. Here's the Portland group. Here's the um, collection of the group that's in the LA area. Here's, you know, lots of different groups around the state. And, um, I met really nice authors there who were super willing to like, just even interact there, but also that you could have said, Hey, can I grab your email address and talk to you about this? Because I noticed like one of them, I remember meeting, um, Bruce, what is his last name? he's a great author. He keeps winning. Like, I, I feel like every time I see that the main publishers and writers Alliance does an award ceremony, I see he won one, <laughs> but I'm totally blanking on his last name, but, um, he's a former police officer or detective, you know, and now he writes police procedurals, but he will happily like talk to anyone about their questions that they have for their novel about, um, writing, the police procedure scenes. And so that's a really cool way to meet people. And I also just met people through like word of mouth. So like my hippie mother has a hippie friend who is friends with Maureen Milliken and she's an author in Maine. And 
Um, I think she's more from like the central Maine area, but she comes down to Portland. And so she and I have had coffee a few times and she read early chapters of my book and that kind of thing. And she's wonderful. Um, and I, again, I could go on, but the point is just that there are the writers in Maine in particular, I feel like, especially in the crime genre, as far as I can tell, because I've met so many of them who are like, oh, I'll take you out for pizza and I'll talk to you about this. And I'll tell you how I did my book launch. And they're just wonderful. Um, And so I definitely had that. I don't know how much I was using them for like the process of how to write a novel, um, but I was definitely using them for like different aspects of the the business, I guess. especially kind of like just how do you how do you do it once you have something or once you even have a book deal how do you handle the stress of that in a way or what did you what did you do when you were launching your book that kind of thing well it's interesting you talk about the business of it too because i think um in sort of the way that people often think about writing a book, right? You think of like, oh yeah, you know, kind of like we said about Stephen King, like sitting down every day and pouring over, you know, your writing and then writing, writing, writing. But I think that a lot of people don't appreciate, and certainly I don't think about on a day-to-day basis, the the business side of it too. And like, what does it mean to, you know, get a book deal? Or what does it mean to have to go track down a publisher? Or do I need an agent for this? Do you mind talking a little bit about how you handled those Yeah. So, um, I definitely did talk to offers like local authors, um, that I met there or at a conference. Um, that's another great way to meet people. And, um, that said, I also use the internet. Like that was really my starting place for everything. Besides I do have some books, including Stephen King's and he talks about it some, but, um, it wasn't, I feel like it's not super accurate to say there are maybe like a few issues that have ever come up that I literally went back and opened his book and tried to find what he had said about it. There were a few things that I genuinely was like, I remember him saying something great about this and I need to find it. Um, Or I have a great book called um, Before and After the Book Deal by Courtney Mom, like M-A-U-M, I think. And that is a great book for offers. And it goes just like it sounds like from the beginning of you're needing to do, you're needing to figure out how to get this published to you have a book deal and you're freaking out. <laughs> you want to know what's normal. Um, she has a lot of great research in there, but that said, um, the internet was really, really my place. And it was just spending lots of time Googling things and finding really like word of mouth from other authors on the internet, which sources they trust. So figuring out which ones people are recommending. And then of that batch, which ones are working for me to look for agents, to look for advice about how to write a cover letter, not a cover letter, a query letter, which is essentially a cover letter, um, um, advice about what kind of publisher you want to aim for, or like what your goals, what are some realistic goals you could have for yourself? Like all of that kind of stuff was really the internet. And one place I will plug is, um, pitch wars. It's pitchwars.org. They do an annual contest, but they have resources that are amazing. Like that you could look at year round. And I did the contest and I didn't get picked. It was like, it's a contest where you're trying to get a mentor to, um, help you with your draft of the novel and get you ready to pitch it to agents, um, at the end of the period. 
And I didn't get like a single request for my manuscript, anything like that. And it was still like the best experience because it forced me to prep all my materials to send to these would be mentors. And um, some of them were kind enough to write back and say, Hey, if you did blah, blah with your query letter, that would make it a lot stronger. And so, um, or like your synopsis should include this too. That would have been really helpful to know. It definitely made my material a lot better. And it also just taught me about the material in the first place. Yeah. It, it sounds like a great experience. That sounds like everything you could want, right? It's sort of like a, a super condensed way to get lots of feedback all at once. Yeah, it was great. And so I plug it all the time for people. <laughs> and then, I mean, you got, in my opinion, sort of like one of the the big publishing houses, right? Penguin was the one that had picked up your book. So that's amazing. Yeah. And it, it was very, um, it was like wonderful, but also like so jarring <laughs> that I like almost couldn't enjoy it. I have like, I bet you can understand, you know, being a lawyer and being around lawyers, just like kind of what we can be like. So tightly wound sometimes that even when like the best thing happens, you're like, but I don't deserve it. And so <laughs> it's going to fall apart and I can't tell anyone about it because it's going to fall apart. And it's like, what are you talking about? But that's kind of <laughs> what I was doing. <laughs> but Ben was celebrating. My husband was celebrating. He was like, "All right, crazy! Like, I'm gonna enjoy this because this is great news. <laughs> You're gonna catch up eventually." <laughs> um, but yeah, so for me, I did, in all honesty, not have a ton of time to even like game plan what I wanted to try to do once I got the agent. Like that took a long time. But then once I agreed to work with her, um, her name's Helen Heller. She's amazing. Look her up online if you're looking for an agent. Um, she's out of Canada and she's fabulous. But she was like, the timing was so perfect that um, she just was like, I don't know, a bat out of hell, honestly. Like she just was on it so fast and she had sold it within less than a week um, wow. of me. And so it was like, oh, I don't even really have to think about what's realistic and what we're going to try to do because I have this ridiculous preempt offer from this awesome imprint at Penguin. And so I, I'm just going to take it. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I don't have to think about it. And so um, I, but I mean, to be fair, I did think about it. I, I talked to the editor and talked to Helen a lot about what it would mean to take the offer and that kind of thing. But at the same time, it wasn't the same as what some authors experience going on submission for like a longer period of time and really strategizing about what places they were going to target and what kind of questions they were going to ask if they had the opportunity to talk to an editor, that kind of thing. That's fabulous. And I want to actually bring us back to the to the book a little bit too. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed in addition to the human element that we talked about before is that you you touch a lot on some really insightful um sort of geographic and even just like sociological things about Maine. And <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it was like within the first couple of paragraphs you you talk about how Julia is driving through the town and you know, there's like the wealthy area, then the really wealthy area. And then, <laughs> and then the so that part made me kind of chuckle and think like, oh, that's so true. But then there was yeah. also right after that, what really hit me was you said um, 
you know, and then surrounded by a, a lot of farmland, most of it unused. And I thought that was an interesting detail to include. And yeah. I wonder if, if that's sort of how you approach going through your, your day-to-day life. Are you picking up on those sorts of things? Sure. Yeah. And I, I think part of why I know that when you like set out to write a novel and I'm in this right now with my second, it's like, oh my gosh, this takes so long. It's daunting. I don't want it to take that long. But part of the beauty of it taking so long is you're working on it over this like really long period. And when you're driving through Cumberland, you're noticing how much farmland there is, how most of it seems unused. And then there's this really wealthy pocket of people who live in Cumberland also who are like injecting money into the school system. So you have this really interesting place where people really want to go move there. There's also all these different like aspects demographically or like geographically also (laughs) to the same area. And so you make those kinds of notes in your head and then you're back editing the novel the next thing. And you're like, I should totally mention this, you know, when I'm writing this scene. And so I think that that's one of the great things about it taking so long. You have really the luxury of layering stuff in and making it just detailed like that in a way that maybe people who aren't from Maine won't even think anything about those paragraphs. But people from Maine will be like, oh, I bet she really lives here. (laughs) You know, like it sounds familiar to me. Like, and it just kind of makes me feel more like, I believe what you're talking about, you know, and I'm enjoying it and I'm there with you, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And again, like it's absurd because it's in a, it's an excerpt and I'm not like halfway through the book. It, it definitely does feel like you sort of get swept into the story because of a lot of those details. And I guess, did you feel that you were sort of being, in addition to writing this, this great drama, did you feel like you were being a little bit of a tour guide for Maine? And I don't mean in like the, the cheap tourist sense, but like... <laughs> to sort of teach people about what this place is like? I don't know. I guess, to be honest, I wasn't really thinking about it in that way. Mostly I was picturing like, if I, if I'm going to share it, it's going to be with other Mainers anyway, (laughs) like my friends and family. And um, I, yeah, I, so I guess I really didn't think about it in terms of readers not from Maine experiencing Maine through the book, but I also am very aware that that's a selling point to some people that the book is set in Maine and it's written by a Mainer, like people want to experience that. And so, um, I hope I did a good job (laughs) because I honestly didn't really think about it in terms of it being like, I'm going to try to show you what Maine is like. But at the same time, I I do think that it could be that you have that feeling when you read it. You're like, oh, I do feel like I got to see at least what Southern Maine, like it, I, I do totally acknowledge that it's different in different parts of the state. And this book is pretty much completely set in Southern Maine in um, a couple of fictional towns that I just kind of loosely modeled after um, other towns down here. Um, but I do think, I also tried to be pretty close to what the system is like down here, like the criminal justice system. And so I think that is a big part of it too, because that would be different set any other place. And honestly, even if I had set the book in Androscoggin, I'm sure that the criminal process would have looked pretty different in a number of different ways. And even town to town or jurisdiction to jurisdiction, who handles this kind of crime would be different. I know from just doing a little bit of research. And so I think 
a lot of different things could have been different. And so I did do my best to make it really accurate, but it's so funny you say tour guide because I did not think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully the the you know nature descriptions and stuff like that will still entice people to come here. <laughs> but I did also I said it, you know, in like the fall is over, that everything's dead, it's winter, we're all stressed out. So I don't know if I'm <laughs> gonna true. entice any people to come here. <laughs> Do you um keep a lot of this in your head when, when you're, when you're thinking about it and just pour it into a draft or do you do like some writers do, or you've got like tons of notes, you know, in a notebook or in folders and things. Yeah. I have notes everywhere. And I, one of my biggest things that I started doing and honestly, it might sound like, Oh, that would be, that would make me wake up, but it's better than the alternative. I have a notebook by my bed. And so instead of talking, and learning about something I'm thinking about and wondering if I'm going to forget it by the morning and should I get up or should I just open my phone, which has the awful light, I just can roll over in the dark and write down a note. And that is always filled with like everything from like really big plot points that I've been trying to fix. And I came up with an idea to really small things like, I don't know, just like make sure you just like, oh, I just thought of the perfect word to describe what an oak tree looks like in the fall. You know, (laughs) like that's not an actual example, but like it's that level of really tiny detail and those notes are everywhere. Um, And I I think that when I draft, I'm I'm what some would call an underwriter. My drafts are short and get longer and longer as they go. So I definitely don't have that ability to pour in the way that some people do. but I do have notes everywhere. <laughs> so they eventually make their way in and beef up the draft. <laughs> you have notes like on your wall, the way that they do in the, in like crime TV shows where they've got like, <laughs> like threads connecting them. So I, I've never used thread. I do use, <laughs> I do use post-its and or um, index cards. And actually, if you look behind me, you see, <laughs> that that was um a failed attempt at book two it didn't really um end up being what book two is going to be and I've never made a new one for the real book two now um but I do find it helpful to have like a visual for sure but the string I have drawn a line at the string mostly with Ben Holmes office and be like no <laughs> this is not healthy <laughs> I'm glad that you mentioned book two because, um, and don't take this the wrong way because I don't want to add to your stress, but the the, the New York Times <laughs> says that this is one of the buzziest books of the year, right? And then Stephen King says, put it on your summer list. Are you at all like <laughs> kind of nervous about like, oh God, what comes next? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Chris. <laughs> yeah. It's awful. No, it's wonderful. Like, let me step back. Like, it's truly wonderful. I can't handle it. It's the best ever but it also does make it hard to be like, and I think this is really common. It's called second novel syndrome or sophomore novel syndrome. That second book that you write, and it's the first time you're writing it professionally, like under a contract or with the, with like the express purpose of selling it because you've already sold one. It's the worst. (laughs) Like luckily pretty much everyone says that. So you don't feel crazy when you're like, why is this so hard? But I've been trying to come up with the idea for over a year now. And it just hasn't really 
gone in the same way that that first one did. And I'm finally settled on something that we're all on board with. Um, but it was really hard to get that. And I think part of it is like old me screwed over current me because <laughs> I'm like trying to emulate her, but each book is going to be different. So like, I can't actually just copy this book again. And so it's totally hard. <laughs> and, um, and I, I think that a lot of times there is kind of a little bit of a letdown on that second book, but I'm hoping that, um, enough of like the kinds of people that are going to like all of my writing, not just this one off story that for certain reasons, they liked this story. Hopefully those people find the book too. And at least those people will like the second book. <laughs> they'll be like, yes, consistent. Good. I like this. <laughs> and then there'll be other people who are like, it's not exactly like the first book. I hated it. And that's fine too. <laughs> So certainly you don't have to tell me about what the second book's about, but I know that some people in this genre, right, of, of writing crime, they'll take a character that they've developed in the first book and they'll sort of spool them out. Like I like Louise Penny, for example, and, you know, she has Armand Gamache and he is through all, all of her books. Is that something you either are considering or are going to do? Or are you looking at the damage as this one story and then you're going to move on to something completely different? I see this totally standalone. Um and I, I don't know what I would do with those people with where I left them. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I love them forever. <laughs> so, you know, maybe, but um, I, <laughs> I definitely don't picture doing anything else with that story. Um, and what I'm working on right now, I think is another standalone. Um, there's always like, the possibility, especially like you said, in this genre, that's something you can totally get away with, um, especially if you write like a great um, law enforcement or other kind of detective figure who's going to be able to carry the stories through. Um, but I don't even know if my second story really is going to have that, at least not in the way that I had Detective Rice in this first story who has such a strong um, point of view throughout the whole book. And is so important to the arc of the book. Um, I don't think, I don't think this second book will even have that, but maybe it will. I, it's early enough that you just never know what will happen with it. Um, but I do think it would be cool eventually to have like a, a series character. Um, I'm sure there are like also things about that that make it hard but I do think it would be lovely to be able to like return to the same character that whose voice you know really well and who you really like over and over that would be so cool and fun so maybe one day <laughs> and you definitely I will say you've got a knack for writing characters right you, you definitely make them into real people in my opinion so if I think if anybody can do it you're certainly one of the people that can thanks Chris <laughs> I imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong, that you probably were nervous before sharing your first book with anybody for the first time, right? Like you're writing and then like, oh God, do I let you know Ben read this? Do I let my friends see this? Like, do you feel like you're going to have that same trepidation or is that done now that like your, your work is out there for everybody? <laughs> I'm such a nervous person. <laughs> I think it'll be miserable every single time, but I almost wonder if this second time will be worse than the first time. Maybe not. It might, I think that whenever you're experiencing it, you're like, this is definitely worse than the time before. <laughs> so it'll be hard for me to actually know. But I, right now, at least, I feel like at least 
for sure sending the version professionally to those people will be worse because when you query an agent, as much as you really care about what happens and you really hope that they're going to read it and love it, there's also this sense that like this person might literally never look at this email I just sent, (laughs) you know, or they might read this draft and reject me in a form email in a month. You know, like I might never know why they didn't ask to work with me. Um, Whereas now I have an agent whose opinion I care about so much. So when I send it to her, I'm sure I'm going to be just like miserable (laughs) waiting to hear back from her. And then once she's read it, I think then it will go to my editors and exact same scenario as what I just said about her. And so I think it'll just be miserable in a different way, but maybe in terms of sharing it with personal people, it will be better. That first one felt so intimate and weird. Like even now I have a friend, um, I don't know if you know her, Danielle Hansen from the law school. She was below us, but she, um, she has the best luck with contests. (laughs) She won a Goodreads contest and got an early copy of my book. And so, yeah. And so she read it super recently, like in the last few days, I think, and, um, was messaging me about it. And I was, and she really liked it. And, um, she was just like, so excited about it and sending me all these messages. And I was like, Danielle, like, I, I'm so happy you read it, but I also feel so weird that you read it. It's just so it's, it's such a funny thing when like a really good friend, there's something really intimate, I guess, about writing a novel. And I think that first one probably is maybe the worst. I don't know, unless you then write a memoir. (laughs) Yeah, no, I could see that because there were definitely moments. And I think actually the, the scene where Julia is coming out of the car and getting ready to go in and talk to the detective, there are moments in there where she's like sort of spooling in her head. And I'm like, oh, I can totally see Caitlin putting this in there like that. Yeah, totally. And I think that it, if you read the whole thing, you'll be like, oh, Julia's Caitlin. And then I'll be like, no, she's not. I think that's just kind of like how it works especially that first book that you write it's really hard for like every character not to look like you and um especially the ones that physically look like you the reader is like I just can't even separate this in my head like I'm just picturing you this whole book I'm like, well, she's a fictional character and has nothing to do with me. And it's just not really quite accurate. But I think maybe you get a little bit better about separating yourself. And um, maybe you just feel more confident putting yourself into characters that aren't exactly like you or facets of you. Like the Tony character, he ruminates a ton in the book. And that is me to a T. Like he is he is me in a lot of ways, but then there are plenty of other things about him that are completely unlike me. And I think that's easier than for, you know, a friend not to be like, Oh, I couldn't stop picturing you when I was reading his scene. Like obviously, (laughs) but yeah, I'm hoping that with each book, I'll just get more confident about writing like really different people from me. Yeah. Yeah. I I can imagine that's that's true. Right. As you sort of grow into the way that you want to write. And I think um, I think I want to I want to hear what you have to say, though, about like the fact that you do definitely do have a certain worldview. Right. And do you think that always comes out in your book? Like, did you feel like 
even after all the research and everything, that this book in some way was, this is, you know, Caitlin's take on this sort of slice of life? Yeah, what's funny is I think, no. I think genuinely the book does not reflect my worldview. And I think that that, and I don't really know how to explain it. And so maybe you would, like, maybe some people might read it and be like, honey, I think this is your worldview. (laughs) You know, like, I think you just don't want to admit this is your worldview. So you've wrote it into a book and maybe that's true. I just don't think it is. And so um, I think that sometimes I really love drama that doesn't match what I think. And I still, it's like, I don't know how to explain it. It's more like the feeling at the end doesn't have to feel right. It can feel like something else. Like to me, the book is more of a tragedy. And so it's like a tragedy isn't in line with my worldview. A tragedy is something went wrong. And um, so that's how I see it. Um, But at the same time, I do think people will take different things from the book in terms of messaging or just in terms of what they think about the ending. I don't mean to be too meta. And my um, interview style is certainly not to be like hardball, push, push, push people. No, it's fine. (laughs) But I wonder if... (laughs) If you almost captured a slice of your your worldview in the way that you described that, though, right? Like that, the I, I can't remember the exact word you used to describe the ending, but the way that you had said that the ending doesn't have to necessarily be the way that you want it to be, is is yeah. that something that you think is is true based on your experience as a as a lawyer and as a person? Oh, totally, totally. Um, I think that is fair, and I think that's also true for like a lot of books and movies that I've liked, and I'm going to be completely unable to give you a single example. (laughs) But I just know that feeling at the end of like, that ending was so imperfect that I really liked it, you know, or that ending was so, um, there was something that felt inevitable about the ending that I really liked it, even though it wasn't what I wanted to happen. That kind of thing I definitely really like. Um, And I think that in the characters, I definitely still eked in my worldview. Like, I think maybe at the end of the book where it, where it lands, some stuff that Nick is talking about is closer to my worldview, but what he gets for an ending isn't what he was talking about. And so I think that's really more of what it is. But yeah, I definitely think there's something in there that is very me about the ending. And now we're being very cagey, which is fun. <laughs> One of the cool things that I, I liked was I, of course, went to figure out where people could buy it and we'll plug it on um, the in the episode notes and on the website and everything. But um, I liked that you can pick it up at print. You can pick it up at all you know, like the local bookstores and things. Do you plan on um, going and promoting it at, at those places too? So um, print is actually hosting my what do you call it? Like launch party or release party. Great. So, um, yeah. So print and, um, I think main writers and publishers is somehow going to be connected to that. I don't really know because, um, this is so bougie, but I have a publicist and she's (laughs) (laughs) who's like doing all of the actual work, you know, behind the scenes. Um, but yeah, so they're going to host it. It's going to be virtual because it's in June. And so we're still doing virtual. Um, but Sherry LaPena, who is, um, a big like domestic suspense thriller writer and, um, 
she's at the same imprint as me in the US. And we actually have the same agent even. She's the reason that I looked up the agent that I ended up getting. Um, She's going to interview me. So she'll be there for the, what do you call it? Launch party or whatever. Yeah. So print is doing that. Um, And I know that in South Portland, none such is allowing pre-orders of the book because that's where a lot of my friends have pre-ordered it through. Um, And then I'm also going to do an in-person event in July at um, a shop in South Portland called the Knitting Nook. It's not a bookshop. It's a knitting shop. It's also like a bar. It's the coolest place on the planet. And um, if you've ever been there, you know who Lisa is. She feels like your best friend. She's like the nicest person ever. And she is going to do like an outdoor book signing for me. Because I was like, I was like knitting with her in the shop. (laughs) like masked up this winter one day. (laughs) And I was like talking about how my friends who are so well-meaning really want me to sign their books. And I feel so awkward about that. Like I just want to die thinking about signing my friend's copies of the books. And she was like, come here and I will ply you with wine and you will loosen up and sign their books. And then it became like, let's do a book signing for people. <laughs> and I'll just be drinking like bottomless wine and I'll have to like pump and dump that day. And it's fine. <laughs> and I'll sign the copies for everyone. <laughs> and it'll be great. And so that'll be in July. <laughs> but those are my only like local events that we have planned. But I do, you know, want to kind of make the effort, especially as, you know, the vaccine has come along and I've gotten fully vaxxed, um, going in in person and just being like, hi, if you have any interest, I'm here. Love to do something with you, but no pressure, like to local spots for sure. That's great. Yeah. I, I ordered my copy through print and I know you can do pre-orders to them too, which is great. <laughs> and they're not only are they super convenient to folks on the Island, but they're like a block from where I work. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking of. They're like so close to you. But do they do like deliveries to the island? Is that they do? Yeah, which is also amazing. Yeah, yep. yeah that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, they're a great place. I'm I'm looking forward to your your launch party. That's really cool. Do you if you have yeah. a link? Do you mind um, sharing it? And I'll put it in the notes. Yeah, I don't think I have an actual link yet, but I can. I can at least give you all the details that I have. And if I, if I can get some kind of link, but I don't think that they've done like the zoom mm-hmm. thing yet. And I don't know that they even have a web page for it. I, I know very little about how like the marketing parts work, You'll but I will get you all the information. I can. <laughs> yeah. I'll talk to my, exactly. I'll talk to my people. I'll get it for you. <laughs> All right. Well, are, is there anything that you wish that we had touched on that we didn't? I don't think so. This was awesome. Thanks so much to Caitlin for taking some time to talk about her book. And thank you for listening. If you're intrigued by the book, you can pick it up at all major booksellers. And of course, you can pick it up at our local bookshops as well, including print, which is just a short walk from the boat. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to Peaks Island Radio on your favorite podcast app or sign up for email updates by visiting peaksislandradio.com where you'll find our complete archives and more information about the station. For eight summer Fridays, Peak Sound Radio teams up with Jones Landing and local musicians to bring you the Peak Sound Radio concert series, 6.30 Jones Landing Fridays. Come here, local musicians, have a few drinks, grab some dinner from Millie's Skillet and the Greeks of Peaks food trucks nearby. Coming up on July 16th, Leonard Cohen night. 
On July 23rd, it's the Hedgehogs with their British Invasion favorites. Come join Peak Silent Radio Fridays at 6.30 at Jones Landing. Celebrate the return of local music on Peak Silent.